Sometimes, when you're a preacher, you preach what God tells you to preach. And we're not in a series right now. or we, I guess we were. We were coming off of Palm Sunday and Easter and talking about being a true disciple, what it looks like. Um, this sermon's been on my heart for uh, a couple of months now, and I've had a few questions. So, anytime I start getting questions from the body, then in, in my mind that con- confirms to me that uh, the Lord is ready for me to speak um, on this topic. So, that's what we'll do tonight. This is not part of a series. This is just one topical sermon. In her book entitled, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, and how can you not love that title, right? Don't you love that title? (laughs) The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Yeah, just like you and me, right? It's like you and me. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University, Syracuse, New York, in America. She says she was a good citizen. She worked for justice and compassion and equality. She was a member of the Unitarian Universalist Church. But she really had a big problem with the biblical Jesus. I like how she says it. She was quite honest and candid. She said, He stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. The biblical Jesus, right? She's not talking about the cartoon Jesus that's preached in many places. She says, the biblical Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. Her worldview was primarily shaped by Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin. And she said she was on a personal mission and war against, quote, stupid, unquote, particularly right-wing evangelical Christian fundamentalists. Um, She was doing research on the politics of the religious right in America, and part of that research was to read the Bible. Of course, her principal goal was to find points of ridicule. Now, she was an English professor at Syracuse, and as she read through the Bible, uh, she loved the diverse and powerful literary aspects of, of the book, but she hated, she absolutely hated and recoiled at the worldview. During this time, she happened to write a letter to the local paper harshly critiquing a Christian event that had taken place in the Syracuse community. In reply to her letter, she received a letter from the pastor of the local Presbyterian church. The pastor asked her to defend her presuppositions of her worldview. Uh, at first, she threw the letter away, then she decided to retrieve it, and she decided to answer it. Uh, She began a cordial friendship with this pastor, and she continued to read the Bible over and over again, principally to try to discredit it. I'll go ahead and tell you that her name is Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Her Ph.D. is in, quote, queer theory, unquote, a postmodern form of gay and lesbian studies, and she was a radical feminist in a committed lesbian relationship. One evening, at a social event, one of her transgender friends told her that she noticed all this Bible reading was starting to affect her. And Rosario asked her friend, what if the Bible's true? What if we're all in trouble? And her transgender friend confessed to Rosario 
that in her past she had been a Presbyterian minister for 15 years and her friend gave her all of her theology books. Rosaria said she tried to continually discredit the Bible. It was antithetical to everything she had built her life upon. It claimed to be a supernatural revelation of absolute truth. And she says proudly, I was a postmodern. I didn't believe in absolute truth. Let me read what Rosario says as she read through the Bible for the fourth time. Something started to happen in me, she said. The Bible got to be bigger inside me than me. Isn't that a beautiful thing? She said something happened as I read through the fourth time. The Bible got to be bigger inside me than me. She continues, the Word of God began to overflow into my world. I really fought against it. But then one Sunday morning, no different from any other Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover. And an hour later, I sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I went there very conscious of the fact that I did not fit in. But I had to confront this God. We read part of Romans chapter 1, and she says in her book, that Romans chapter 1 was more or less a table of contents for her life. And it caused her to ask herself this question, which is an incredibly important question. She says, as I read Romans 1, she said, the question kept coming to me, what was my body for in the first place? Why do I have this body in the first place? What is my body for? And it made me think of the last time I preached on a topical social issue. Some of you were probably here a year or so ago. We talked about abortion. And you may remember how I framed that subject and I want to frame homosexuality in the same way. I started with a quote from John Piper. It's a biblically sound quote. And I believe it's, it's true. I believe the Bible clearly teaches what this quote says. John Piper writes, famous preacher in the States, if you don't know. Human life is all about God. Right? That is the meaning of human of being a human being. It is our created nature to make much of God. It is our glory to worship the glory of God. When we fulfill this reason for being, we have substance. There is weight and significance in our existence. But when humans forsake their Maker and love other things more, they become like the things they love, small, insignificant, inconsequential, and God-diminishing. That quote led me to say to you, that regarding abortion, that sex is all about God, conception is all about God, pregnancy is all about God, the baby in the womb is all about God, motherhood is all about God, fatherhood is all about God, which meant that abortion is all about God. And that's how we framed that discussion. 
So back to Rosaria's question. What was her body made for anyway? You already know. It's all about God. Ultimately, it's about God. Piper answers it perfectly for us. Rosario's body, it's about the glory of God. Sin, pardon me, sex, is all about God. It was His idea. He invented it. He thought it up. And He is unambiguous in His revelation to us. He has told His creatures that this gift of human sexuality is to be enjoyed between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. And I I was talking to Karen as I was studying this this week. And I said, you know, you can get lost in all the arguments. You can listen to the world and you can even listen to some arguments within what is called um, the, the universal church. But if you look at God, it straightens you up. When you look at God, all the fog is blown away. You simply don't really have time to entertain all of the other thoughts that might come from the culture. It's why you need to remember that your sexuality It's all about God. It's not about you, ultimately. It's about the One who gave you the gift of sexuality. And He's told us what it's for. And He's told us how to use that gift. And who do you think you are that you would try to change the rules on God? Beloved, when you look at God, it blows all the fog away from almost every serious question in life. Just look at God. Just look at God. As we've talked about in our marriage class um, a couple of times for over the month, last month or so, God has revealed to us in His Word that marriage is like a, it's like a metaphor. It's like a parable of the mystery of the union of Jesus Christ and His church. Ephesians chapter 5. A, ma- a marriage between a man and a woman is an important parable. God means for marriage to be a parable about His Son and the church. You don't get to redefine marriage because it suits you. You don't get to do that, beloved. Nobody gets to do that. God sanctioned marriage in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's His idea. It's His intellectual property. He copyrighted it. You don't get to change it simply because you think it might be a good idea. For God made them male and female, and a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become 
one flesh. So, why a sermon on homosexuality when there are so many other sins uh, as equally heinous in the eyes of God? I think you know why. I don't think I have to tell you. Because I personally, I watch the, the U.S. media I want to, to, to get my news and I'm personally bombarded by the narrative. And if you happen to watch a, a movie, it'll be in the narrative. Uh, many, many movies. It's, it's in the music. It's, it's just the cultural narrative now. And questions come to me as a pastor and I need to be able to speak to it. Homosexuality has taken on a very unique property in this culture this destructive sin God so clearly condemns in His Word, it has been redefined as a civil right, as a political cause, an issue of equal justice and equality, freedom and liberty. The redefinition of homosexuality as an acceptable alternative lifestyle is seen by many in the world as just the right, compassionate, tolerant, and loving thing to do. I mean, who are we to judge? Right? And I would remind you that you are no judge. You are not the judge. Jesus Christ is the judge. He will judge. What is your job? What is my job? To love. To love. That's our job. Our job is not to judge, beloved. Our, our, our job is to love the sinner by sharing truth with him or her just as somebody shared the truth with you at some point, or you probably wouldn't be sitting in this room. It's not our job to judge. Yes, we call sin, sin. If the Bible calls it sin, we call it sin. But our principal job is to love. Jesus said it, Mark 12, 29-31. What is, the, what is the, the greatest commandment? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. These are the greatest commandments. So, what is your job, Christian, as you talk to your friends and family and colleagues and neighbors about homosexuality? Your job is to love them. Not by affirming the culture's narrative, but by affirming God's narrative. In love. I love what Karen always says. Some of you have been in her Bible studies. <laughs> you know how she says it. I love it. Your job is to agree with God. Even when the whole world is blaspheming Him by calling into question His motives by what He says in His Word. Your job is my job is to agree with God. That's our job, beloved. And I want to say it. I'm going to keep saying it. You heard me pray it. In love. In love. In love, we share the truth of what God has, says, God has said in His Word. Our bodies are all about God. Sex is all about God. Marriage is all about God. And I want to say this, if you're really out in the world living your Christianity, if you have homosexual friends, you at least have some credibility already with them. Because they will see how you live. They will see that you live with compassion. That you live with kindness. 
They, they, they know that's the, that's the ambiance of, of who you are and the ambiance of your words. You cannot bludgeon any sinner into the kingdom of God. Amen? You cannot do it. You can't debate them into the kingdom of God. But what you can do is you can love them by simply sowing the seeds of truth into their life. This is what you're called to do in this culture at this time with respect to homosexuality. And when I was young, it was a no-brainer. This was a non-issue. It just didn't exist. It was taboo. It was not talked about. But I've seen a lot change in my lifetime. I, granted, I'm an old guy. I get it. I know what you're thinking. It's true. I'm an old guy. But beloved, you're called to agree with God and you're called to love the sinner. I don't care if he's an adulterer, a fornicator, a homosexual, a thief, a robber, a gossip, a glutton, it, whatever, whatever. You lovingly sow seeds of truth. That's your job. You build relationships and you sow the seeds You never try to bludgeon a sinner <laughs> into repentance. It's not going to work. But God's Word will work. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. How do we best love ourselves? Well, because like what you're doing right now, you've put yourself under the preached Word of God. You're loving yourself. You, you spend time in the Word of God each day. You put yourself in the Word of God. So as you love yourself by eating the truth, by eating the meat and, and bread of God, you in turn give that meat and that bread to your homosexual friend. Again, not with an axe or a hammer, but with kindness. You just sow the truth. You just sow the truth. And you just sow the truth. That's what we do. And then God does what God does. Some of you may be, may be familiar with 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. This is your job. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snares of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Truth is not merely a biblical proposition or assertion. Truth is... A person, truth is Jesus. So we share the truth, right? We share the truth. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 8, 31, Jesus says, In my word is truth, and that truth will what? It will make you free. We speak freedom to sinners. I'm free. <laughs> I once was not free. I was a proper church member, but I was still in my sin. God set me free through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So in what 
Rosario Butterfield discovered as she kept reading the Bible, she didn't run into a bunch of dead laws. Right? She didn't run into a bunch of do's and don'ts and, 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 and shoulds and oughts. She ran into Christ. She ran into the truth. Capital T, truth. She ran into her Creator. That's what happened to her. And as you sow truth to the homosexual in your life, the friend or family member that you have, as you love them enough, you know you got to love them enough some of you may not love your friends and family enough to share truth with them. It's just so much easier to affirm what the culture says, isn't it? It's just so much easier to be concerned about how I'll look than be concerned about their eternal destiny. It's so much easier to be concerned about myself. And beloved, I think most of the time that's what it comes down to. It just comes down to sheer cowardice and selfishness. I know what God has said, but I'm not going to say it in this context. I'll look bad. Beloved, you don't have to look bad. You just have to share the truth. I like to use the word winsome. We don't bludgeon anybody into the Gospel. We just sow the truth. There's a lot of really, really <coughs> bad news in the Bible for homosexuals. But there's some really, really good news in the Bible for homosexuals and adulterers and fornicators and gossips and gluttons and thieves and liars. Jesus Christ saves sin. Jesus Christ saves sinner. Rosaria, as she read through the Bible the fourth time, her sexuality stopped being about her. It started to be about God. That's when you understand that you're getting somewhere. <laughs> you begin to see every major concern in your life in the context of God. What does God say? I don't care what the media says. What does God say? It stopped being for her about her opinions and her desires and her rights and you know alternate lifestyles and marriage equality and gay rights. It stopped being about that and it started to be about God for the first time. Why was she here? Why did she have this body? What did it all mean? As she read through the Bible. For the fourth time. The truth of God got bigger in her than the lies of, de of the devil and the lies of the culture. Jesus became more important to her than her lesbianism. This is how you know. <laughs> Whatever the sin is in your life, this is how you know. That you're getting past it. Jesus becomes more important than you having that sin or you having your way. Jesus is my preeminent joy. Jesus is my preeminent joy. And I want Him more than I want my lesbian lover. I want Him more than to, than to have sex with my girlfriend. 
Right? I want Him more than to surf the internet for pornography. Jesus satisfies me much more. You know, I heard Piper talking this week and it was so beautiful. He said, he says, your soul will adapt to your highest pleasure. Don't you love that? I love that man. He is a gift from God. Your soul will adapt to its highest pleasure. What is your highest pleasure? For Rosario, it was her lesbianism. But you know how we talked about it, I think, earlier in the year, about the guy in, in, in Matthew 13, 44. He found the treasure. He found Jesus. Jesus is the treasure. And He sold everything He had that He might possess the treasure. And that's how it was for her. She left her, the bed of her lesbian lover because Jesus was more satisfying to her than... Her sexuality. So, what was her body made for anyway? It's a great way to talk about sexual sin. Again, whether you name it, you put whatever label on it, whatever sexual sin. We're all broken, right? Aren't we all broken to one degree or another? We're all broken. We're all broken sexually to one degree or another. Every one of us is broken. if not physically, mentally. We've all dishonored God in some way in our hearts, in our minds, and in our bodies. We've not honored Him as He ought to be in our sexuality. Rosaria is asking the right question. What was her body made for? It was made for the glory of God. Which lands us in Romans chapter 1 because it was the chapter that she says God made her ask that question. So, very, very quickly, verse 18, did you notice that men receive the truth, but what? They suppress the truth. They hold down the truth. I've always told you, it's not that men don't know, it's that they do know. They just don't like what God has said, so they hold down the truth. The lesbian knows it. The abortionist know it. The atheist know it. The fornicator knows it. The adulterer knows it. He knows it! He knows what God has said. It's written on his heart. It's written on his conscience. He just pushes it down. So Romans 1 tells us we all know. We all know it's written in our hearts and in our conscience. That's what it says here. I won't reread the whole text, but verse 19, God says what? that which is known about me is evident within them. I, I made it evident to them. My invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature are clearly seen and understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Verse 21. But they did, they did not honor me. They did not give thanks to me. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. It's... The beautiful, beautiful is the wrong word. It's the accurate picture of fallen man. It's who we are in our chosen estrangement from our Creator. Verse 23, we exchange the glory of God for the 
corruptible form. The incorruptible God, we exchanged Him for corruptible form. And in the context that we're talking about tonight, for the human form. We've lusted for the human form more than we lusted for God. You know, I've said it to you all the time. You were made to lust for God. Lust, lust is a perfectly good word. It just means a, 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 an incredible desire. You were made to, to love and desire God. You're supposed to, to lust for God. You're supposed to. So, we've made the exchange. We've exchanged our lust for God and we've placed it on the human form or whatever the particular sin may be. We've made the exchange. Instead of honoring God in our sexuality, we have indulged our lusts. We have turned this gift of sexuality into an idol to one degree or another. Many of us have, and certainly the homosexual has. Verses 24-28, to God gave them over. Verse 23, let me just say this first. You'll see it three times in the text. We exchange the glory of God for corrupt things. Verse 25, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Verse 26, we exchange God's design for sex for our own design. We didn't want God's design for our sexuality. We wanted our own. Also notice verse 24, God gave them over in their lust. Verse 26, God gave them over into their degrading passions. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. It never ceases to amaze me. I know I bring this up frequently. That we, you and I, broke the moral universe and then we blame God. We broke it. We ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We broke the moral universe. And then we blame God for all the resulting avalanche of sin. The world is not messed up because God is messed up. The world is messed up because you and I are messed up. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality, bisexuality, casual hookups, incest, rape, pedophilia, sadomasochistic sex, group sex, bestiality, etc., etc., etc. We brought that into the world. We did that. God made us whole and pure. And we broke ourselves. We did that. Read the text. We made the exchange. We thought sex our way would be better than loving God. We thought sex would please us more than loving God and doing His will. And God, we see it in the text, God gives us over. He lets men go their own way. We rejected God's design. We rejected wholeness. And then we blame God for all of this self-inflicted pain. I... I don't understand it. Beloved, in these last days, we hear so-called scholars, pseudo-theologians, false pastors, and priests saying that Romans 1 is not talking about homosexuality. That God doesn't condemn homosexuality anywhere in the Bible. That Jesus does not condemn homosexuality. Although if you read Matthew 5, 17-18, He said He came to fulfill all of the law. That the sin of Solomon and Gomorrah was the sin of being inhospitable. That David and Jonathan were homosexuals and Ruth and Naomi were lesbians. 
This is all just tortured interpretation. It is self-evident fiction. For any unbiased ear to hear and understand. As I always challenge you to do when we get to hard things, <laughs> although this is not particularly hard, but I know because of the cultural narrative, it's difficult maybe for some of you because you've not really been in the Word. You've been listening too much to the world. But as I always challenge you to do, you just have to let the words in the Bible mean what they mean. If you just let the words in the Bible mean what they mean, we all understand what God is saying about homosexuality. As Francis Chan says so well, you just need to read the Bible like a 12-year-old. A 12-year-old doesn't try to spin the words. They just receive the words for what they are, for what they mean. There is no ambiguity with God in either the Old Testament or New Testament regarding homosexuality. And here's the deal, beloved. It doesn't matter which way the cultural wind is blowing. Your job before God is to stand out in the public square and give a witness to the Word of God. And I know it won't go well for some of you. But that, that's not what we're called to, beloved. We're not called to a comfortable walk in this life. Sometimes it will be hard. Sometimes you will pay a heavy price. Sometimes you'll lose the relationship. Sometimes you'll be ostracized. Sometimes you will be persecuted. Sometimes you'll be attacked. It just comes with the territory. But your job is to love enough to speak the truth. Again, not with a hammer. Not with a club. with kindness and gentleness, as Paul told Timothy. Just very briefly, the Bible says, God says, regarding homosexuality, it is an abomination, Leviticus 18.22. It is a detestable act, Leviticus 20.13. It is a degrading passion and unnatural. We saw it in our text. That's in verse 26 of Romans 1. It is an indecent act, Romans 1.27. It is gross immorality, Jude 7. And God says that homosexuals shall not enter into the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. So I'm going to ask you this. I've already mentioned it, but here's what you have to decide. Will you agree with God or not? You call yourself a Christian? Let me, let me just make it easy for you. Don't call yourself a Christian if you can't agree with God in the world. Just don't do it. Don't call yourself a Christian. Now, at least out in the world, don't do it. If you don't have the guts to walk it, don't talk it. Will you agree with God? Will you? That's the question for you and me tonight. And secondly, will you love the homosexual enough even though the whole culture is affirming them? Will you love them enough to say, God said... Will you love them enough? Or will you love your own reputation more? Your own sophistication. Your own acceptance. Beloved, you call yourself a Christian? Every day you're in the world. It's on the line. 
Every day it's on the line. What you say you believe, it's on the line. These days in the States, the sermon might be called hate speech, but what I want to say is, what I want to say is, this is love speech. You have to love somebody to tell them what they absolutely don't want to hear. And you know you may pay a heavy price for it. That's true love. you got to be more concerned about their eternal destination than your own position or reputation or comfort in the world. You guys know what 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11 says. Paul, he goes through this whole list. I won't read it all. But he comes down and he says, there's a whole list of sins here, but he mentions the effeminate and the homosexual. He says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10. But then he says, but such were some of you, but you've been washed by God. You've been washed by Christ. You've been sanctified and justified. Jesus did that in your life. The point being, of course it's possible to repent from homosexuality. I know the world says that it's not. But God says that it is. Who do you agree with? Of course you can't make it happen in your friend's life. That's not your job. Your job is to love them and share the truth with them and build a relationship with them and minister to them and serve them and be their friend. Such were some of you. <laughs> right? Such were some of you. This is love speech, beloved. This is love speech. So back to Rosaria, and I'm finished. Remember, she found herself sitting in a Presbyterian church one Sunday morning. Yeah, you guessed it. It's the church of the Presbyterian pastor who wrote her that cordial letter. The one she had begun to build a friendship with. This pastor had loved her with the Word. This pastor had loved her with the truth. And they had become friends. And in reading the Bible and in talking with this cordial pastor, she, she simply says, I met my Savior. Wow, isn't that a beautiful thing? I met my Savior. She found her treasure! Jesus is better than lesbian sex. Right? Jesus is better than anything. And she found Him in the Word through a brother who loved her enough to become her friend and share truth with her. That's what real Christians do, beloved. We don't stand on the street corner and yell vulgarities that's not biblical Christianity. It never has been and it never will be. We love people one person at a time as God puts them in our path and we sow the seed. Just as long as they'll walk with us, we just sow the seed. Listen to what she says and I'm done. Conversion brought with it a train wreck in my life of contradictory feelings ranging from, ranging from liberty to shame. Conversion left me confused. It was a complicated and comprehensive kind of chaos. 
The biblical Jesus made it clear that I could not have Him and my girlfriend. She says in her conversion, she found that she was a single ex-lesbian with a now defunct PhD. She says she lost everything but the dog. But she found out what her body was for. (laughs) It was for the glory of God. It was for the glory of God. By the way, Rosaria married that Presbyterian pastor and they have four children. I'm not saying every story ends that way. But your job, beloved, is to let the the words mean what they mean. Your job is to agree with God. Your job is to say the truth in the world. That is, if you're a disciple of Jesus. That is, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you have the courage to do it. It's an awesome responsibility. It's an awesome responsibility to have the truth. For to whom much is given, what? Much is expected, much is required. Will you share the truth? Will you, love, will you love your family and your friends and your colleagues and your neighbors, your homosexual friends? Will you love them? Will you, will you do it, beloved? It's the call tonight. I'm not telling you to go judge them. I'm telling you to go share the truth of Jesus with them. Yeah, as I said and I'm done, the Bible's full of really, really bad news for the homosexual, but the Bible is full of awesome news. For me, God save me. If He can save me, no one's beyond the pale, beloved. Do your job. I'll try to do mine. You try to do yours. And if you have a hard time, you need somebody to pray with you, call me. I'll pray with you. I'll pray for you. I'll come with you to to sit with your friend. Uh, Whatever. Do your job. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for the truth. It is a hard time in the world with respect to this sin. It is culturally celebrated now. So Lord, we are definitely swimming against the current. Lord, give us the courage and the love to be Your witnesses in the world. We don't bludgeon anybody with the Word. We lovingly, winsomely, with patience and kindness and grace and mercy, share the truth. Help us, Father. Help us have the courage to be Your people. Give us that supernatural love for the lost around us that we won't be concerned so much about the outcome and how it affects us, but we would be concerned 
about the one we share with. Lord, we want to be those kind of people. Help us, we pray. In the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I think we will not sing tonight. Uh, my band is scattered. Um, if you have questions, comments, please. I'm, I'm always. I'm at the end of the email address. I'll do my best. Um, have a good week. God bless. Uh, go be a witness. Amen. <laughs>